Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to go to school. Uh, the title of the message is Cold Case Christianity. It's named after a book written by J. Warner Wallace. J. Warner Wallace spoke here uh, a couple of years ago at uh, one of our conferences here, the NorCal Fire Conference, and it was a great presentation. And this is where I learned about his book after him being here. So when we have these conferences, I mean, it's worth everybody's time to come to them and learn from the speakers that we have here. The subtitle of the book is Evaluating the Eyewitness Testimony of the Gospel Writers. And there's two reasons that uh, I, I picked this message. One reason is I always heard that the testimony or the historical veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most attested to of any ancient historical event. And I wanted to know, well, what is that evidence? If there's so much, and everyone says it's the most. And I've been overwhelmed with this, my personal study to find out how much evidence there is for the Christian message. The second reason is from the Bible. Contrary to popular opinion, Christians are not supposed to just have faith. Christians are commanded to know what they believe and why they believe it. They are commanded to give answers to those who ask, 1 Peter 3.15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with, do it with gentleness and respect. And to demolish all arguments against the Christian faith, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Since God is reasonable and wants us to use our reason... Christians don't get brownie points for being stupid. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord in Isaiah 1.18. In fact, using reason is part of the greatest commandment which Jesus gave us in Matthew 22.37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. J. Warner Wallace was a cold case detective uh, in Southern California. And he recalls a story where he got called out on an officer uh, involved in a shooting. And this officer had pulled over a drunk driver. And Mark, I mean, uh, J. Warner Wallace actually acted this out for us when he was here. So this is him retelling the story from his book, When Mark, the Arresting Officer, asked the drunk driver to turn around so he could conduct the pat-down search. The driver turned away for a moment, pulled his gun, and then turned back towards Mark, pointing the gun at Mark's chest. I knew that he had the drop on me, Mark told me as he recalled the events. His gun was already drawn and pointed at me before I could even get my hand on mine. The driver pointed his gun at Mark, and started to squeeze the trigger. 
Mark was about to enter the fight for his life. And he was starting out with a distinct disadvantage. He was already seconds behind his opponent. He knew that a bulletproof vest could stop a bullet. On that night, Mark was going to put that vest to the test. I just tensed up my stomach muscles and prepared to take the shot as I pulled out my gun on the holster. I knew he was going to get the first round off. While Mark knew that the vest could sustain the impact of a 45 caliber round, tonight he trusted it in, the vest, in that vest for the very first time. In that singular moment, Mark went from belief that to belief in. It's one thing to believe that the vest, the vest can save a life. It's another thing to trust it to save your own life. It's one thing to believe in Christianity that it can save a sinner. It's another thing to trust Christianity to save it from your own sins. One quote that J. Warner Wallace quotes in his book from C.S. Lewis, God in the Dock, has stuck with him, he said, for years. And C.S. Lewis noted, Christianity is a statement, is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing you cannot say is it's moderately important. Christianity, if it is true, is worthy of our investigation. J. Warner Wallace, as I noted, was a police detective, and he investigated cold case murders. That was his specialty. He was one of the most featured lawyers, or I mean uh, police detectives, on Dateline uh, many years ago. There are many similarities between investigating cold cases and investigating the claims of Christianity. Cold case homicides are events from the distant past for which there is often little or no forensic evidence. And Christianity makes a claim about the event from the distant past for which there is little or no forensic evidence. Like cold cases, the truth about what happened can be discovered by examining the statements of the eyewitness testimonies that we have and comparing them with what little additional evidence is accessible to us. If the eyewitnesses can be evaluated and their statements can be verified by what is available, an equally strong circumstantial case can be made for the claims of the New Testament. But are there any reliable eyewitness statements in existence to corroborate in the first place? This became the most important question J. Warner Wallace had to answer in his personal investigation of Christianity. Were the gospel narratives eyewitness accounts, or were they only moralistic mythologies? Were the gospels reliable, or were they filled with untrustworthy supernatural absurdities? The most important question he could ask about Christianity just so happened to fall within his area of expertise. So it's a four-point outline that he went through, and this is what he does in his cold cases. Number one, were the eyewitnesses present? Were the alleged eyewitnesses, the gospel writers, present in the first place? Were they there in the time that the events happened? Were their claims corroborated? The New Testament is a claim of historical prophesy in the Old Testament. 
Is there support by any others of what the gospel writers claim? Were the gospel writers accurate? What did they say, and how well has it been preserved over time? And were they biased? Did the gospel writers have a bias, and did they have a motive to lie? The first point, were they present? If the gospels are written late, then they are a lie. They're not eyewitness testimonies. So a paramount question is, were the alleged eyewitnesses present in the first place? I want us to look at the timeline from Jesus Christ's ministry, A.D. 27 to 30, towards the first council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Were the eyewitness testimonies closer to the time of Christ or closer to the time of the council of Nicaea? As J. Warner Wallace looks at the testimony of the New Testament, he looks at certain events that are missing that you might expect to be there. The New Testament fails to describe the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The New Testament fails to describe the siege of Jerusalem beginning in A.D. 66. And Luke wrote a history of the church, and these events aren't mentioned. And these are historical, monumental events. Jesus Christ prophesied the destruction of the temple. No stone would be left unturned, and that was fulfilled exactly 40 years after he made the prophecy. And the reason no stone was left unturned in that temple is because the stones were gilded with gold and the Roman soldiers were going home with their bounty. They got all the gold off of all the stones. So, and the siege was six, it took four years to conquer Jerusalem. So the siege started in A.D. 66 and by A.D. 70, Jerusalem fell. And for that not to be mentioned, is suspect. Luke says nothing about the deaths of Paul and Peter, A.D. 67 and 68. Luke says nothing about the death of James, the brother of Jesus Christ, in A.D. 62. And Paul quoted Luke's gospel in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17 in about A.D. 62 to 64. So Paul echoed the claims of the gospel writers, and he wrote Timothy, as I said, in 62-64, James in A.D. 62. So Acts had to be written before this if he's not going to mention it. Paul echoed the claims of the Gospels, as I mentioned. In fact, Paul's outline of Jesus' life matches the Gospels that I read to you this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. That was written in A.D. 55. I want to reread the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. I'm sorry, go 3 through 8. So here's, uh, here's Paul's personal testimony. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. He's repeating something he's heard previous to him writing this. So this is old information that he's now putting down in writing. I'm writing to you a first importance what I also received. That Christ died for the sins in accordance with scriptures that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Paul, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. These are all the things that he had heard, and he's repeating it now and writing it down for us. And last of all, as to one untimely porn, he appeared also to me. 
Galatians 1.18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none other than the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. This means that Paul saw the risen Christ and learned about the gospel accounts from the eyewitnesses, Peter and James, within five years of the crucifixion. He's repeating a story and writing it down in 1 Corinthians in A.D. 55, something he learned in A.D. 31 to 35. Most scholars place Paul's conversion in A.D. 31 to 33, and he visited Peter and James within three years of his conversion. So this is why Paul was able to tell the Corinthians that there were still more than 500 brethren who could confirm the resurrection accounts. That's a gutsy claim to make in A.D. 55 when his readers could easily have accepted his challenge and called him out on it as a liar if the claims were untrue. So, looking at the evidence. First, we have the account of the suspicious absence of several key historical events in the New Testament record. The destruction of the temple, the sage of Jerusalem, the deaths of Peter, Paul, and James. These omissions can be reasonably explained in the, if the book of Acts... The biblical text that ought to describe these events was written prior to A.D. 61-62. These events are missing from the accounts because they haven't happened yet. In fact, the accounts end with Paul still in jail. Another, the skeptics sometimes say, the gospel writers were anonymous, so we can't believe they wrote them. Some will argue that the gospel accounts were written much later in time, and the author's names assigned to make them look legitimate. But like other ancient works that were anonymous, the authorship is supported by external historical evidence by historical scholars. Why? Because of claims by the early writers like Papias, who lived in the first century, that would be before 100 AD, as well as others, attributed the authorship to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. From day one, it was assigned to them. In fact, there were no competing alternative ancient traditional claims, and no one in antiquity ever attributed the names to anyone else other than the four traditionally accepted authors. Some would claim that the destruction of the temple was deliberately left out and the prediction made up to look like a prophetic power long after it happened. But if that was the case, why were the gospel writers unafraid to describe the fulfillment of the prophecies of other passages in the gospel. Over and over again, we see the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecies that are attributed to Jesus in one manner or another, over 100 of them. In addition to this, over several occasions, Jesus predicted his own resurrection. The gospel writers were readily describe the fulfillment of these predictions in the resurrection accounts, why would they be willing to describe those aspects of fulfilled prophecy but shy away from describing the destruction of the temple? While it is certainly possible the gospel writers were all written after the destruction of the temple, it is not evidentially reasonable. Anybody can throw out any idea to say, well, it could be possible, but is it reasonable? And that's what we do in our courts of law when we listen to all the testimony. We try to decide what is the most reasonable reason to explain what happened. 
In fact, the primary motivation for denying the early authorship of the Gospels is simply the bias against supernaturalism. That leads the skeptics to redate the Scriptures at some point following the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. The same thing they tried to do about Isaiah 53 and said that was written afterwards. So I think the Gospel writers passed the first test. They made making sure that the eyewitnesses were truly present when evaluating And when evaluating the gospel writers, the most reasonable inference from the evidence is an early date of authorship. But does this mean they're reliable? Not yet. There's much more to consider. But the gospels have passed the first test. Their testimony appears early enough in history to confirm that the gospel writers were present to see what they saw. Present to see what they said they saw. So now, were the gospel writers corroborated? Where the gospel writers provide, the gospel writers actually provide unintentional eyewitness support. True, reliable eyewitnesses' accounts are never completely parallel and identical. Instead, they are different pieces of the same puzzle, unintentionally supporting and complementing each other to provide us all the details to related what happened. I'm going to go through three examples the calling of the disciples. And I have the scripture references there in the outline for you. Matthew 4, 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, that's Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishermen of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. Now, if that's the only eyewitness testimony we would have of that event, we would say, oh, Jesus is just walking along the beach. Hey, follow me. Let's be fishermen to men. And they just left their boats and left for what reason? That would be blind faith. But Luke fills in some of the details. Luke 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, excuse me, to hear the word of God, so we know there's a large crowd. He was standing by Lake Gennesaret. Now we know where it's at. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Simon Peter, He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So here's the Lord in Peter's boat preaching, and Peter's listening. He's going to hear what the Lord has to say. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So Paul answers, Master, he must have recognized the veracity of God's, Jesus' preaching there from the boat to call him Master. He's been convicted. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking They signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and help them. 
And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. Just witnessed a miracle. And a miracle usually confirms the testimony of the person that just spoke. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am sinful. A sinful man, O Lord. He knows who he's in the presence of, and he's ashamed of his sin. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were the partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now on I will, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now the story makes a little more sense. They've seen God in the form of Jesus. They've heard him preach. They've seen a miracle. They recognize who he is, and they're going to follow him. Another example. This one's a little bit simpler. Matthew 26, 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is when the Romans had him in custody just before his crucifixion. Well, that doesn't seem too hard, does it? You're standing there, someone hits you in the face. Oh, it was you. Oh, that was you. Doesn't seem too hard. If that's the only testimony we had, it doesn't make too much sense. But Luke, again, fills in a little bit more detail. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Once again, one gospel writer unintentionally supports the other. They're both describing the accounts with whatever details they want to provide, whatever they focused on. The feeding of the 5,000. Mark 6, 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is, not, is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And I think you know the rest of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. So there's some details here missing that John fills in, in John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. So it was mentioned a large crowd, but why was there a large crowd? Because they saw the signs he was doing of the sick. So they've been witnessing miracles, and they're following this miracle worker. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. 
Well, this explains why the crowds might even be larger than just the local people, because people are migrating now to Jerusalem for the Passover. So we have a large crowd. Lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip. Now that's curious. Why Philip? Because Philip usually isn't highlighted. It's usually John, uh, Peter, John, or James that's usually highlighted. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, now we have Andrew being highlighted, another apostle that's usually not highlighted. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are, what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and then you know the rest of the story. One more, Luke 9.10. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. We now know where it happened. When the crowd learned it, they followed him and welcomed them, and they spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had a need of healing. Luke is the only one who told us the event occurred when Jesus was due to the city of Bethsaida. This revelation unlocks the mystery of Philip and Andrew's prominence in John's testimony. They were both from Bethsaida, as John 1.44 tells us. We learn this detail from Luke, who told us of the miracle occurred in Bethsaida, but from John, who mentioned it without any connection to the miracle. Jesus asked Philip about the source of the bread because he knew that Philip was from that part of the country. Philip and Andrew naturally tried their best to respond, given that they were uniquely qualified to answer Jesus' question. Can you imagine J.R. Warner Wallace going through his personal investigation, just like a cold case detective? Well, here's witness one and what he said. Here's witness two what he said. Here's witness three and what he said. Ah, they fit together. They complement each other. These are authentic eyewitness testimonies. What about the grass and the barley? Why were these tales, details included in the narrative? Are they consistent with what the eyewitnesses might have actually seen or experienced? As it turns out, the Passover occurs in April, and is followed by the five rainiest months of the area in Bethsaida. In addition to this, Passover occurred at the end of the barley harvest, this meaningless details are just what you would expect to hear from eyewitnesses who are simply describing what they saw, including the details that don't really matter in the large narrative. So there's many more examples. If you want to know what those other examples, you have to get the book. <laughs> the corroboration of names and languages. The gospel writers did more than correctly cite the popular names that were used in the first century by Palestinian Jews, they also appeared to have written in the style that was similar to those who lived at that time. Non-biblical scraps of papyrus and pottery from the first century provide us with samples of the form of Greek that was popular in the ancient Middle East. The Greek used by the Gospels is very similar to the vernacular common Greek that was used by others who lived in the region at this time in history. The corroboration of location. 
The gospel writers are evidently extremely familiar with the locations they wrote about. While late non-canonical forgeries written from outside the area of Palestine seldom mention any other city but Jerusalem, the one famous city that obviously everyone knew in Israel, the gospel writers alone included specific names of lesser first-century towns and villages, Nazareth being one, Enon, Arimathea, Bethpage, Caesarea, Philippi, Cana, Chorazin, Damunatha, Emmaus, Ephraim, Magadan, Nain, Salem, and Sychar. Some of these villages are so obscure that only people familiar with the area would even know they existed. Now we have the non-biblical eyewitnesses corroborating the gospel. You can see that in your outline there. Joseph, Talus, Tacitus, Marabar, Serapion, and Flagin. Look at their timelines when they lived. Josephus from 27 to 100. He was a general in the Jewish armies that was captured in the siege of Jerusalem. And he ended up becoming a Jewish historian as well as a historian for the Roman Empire. He worked for the Romans after he was captured. And he's writing his, the history that he witnessed. Talus, another ancient history. Tacitus was a Roman senator and a historian. Marabar Serapin was a Syriac Stoic philosopher, and he wrote a letter to his son uh, when he was in prison, and the copy of that letter is stored in the British uh, Library. And Flagin, A.D. 8140, is a, also a Greek historian. So their, their non-biblical eyewitness accounts are written in the time frame that the Gospels are written. I've heard a lot of people say, well, how come the history books don't, didn't write about them? They did. You just got to find the historians that were alive at the time, and what did they write? Now, can't go through what each one wrote, but here's a synopsis. If you put them all together, what these five writers said. These ancient and reluctant non-biblical descriptions of Jesus, they're historians, so they're recording history, include the fact that Jesus was a true historical person and a virtuous, wise man who worked wonders, accurately predicted the future, and taught his disciples. This is what these guys wrote about. His teaching drew a large following, both Jews and Gentiles. He was identified as the Christ, believed to be the Messiah, and widely known as the wise king of the Jews. His disciples were eventually called Christians. His devoted followers became a threat to the Jewish leadership, and as a result, these leaders presented accusations to the Roman authorities. Pontius Pilate condemned Jesus to crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. These are non-biblical writers confirming what the Gospels have said. A great darkness descended over the land when Jesus was crucified, and an earthquake shook a large region surrounding the execution. Following his execution, a mischievous superstition spread about him from Palestine to Rome. The description of Jesus, although incomplete, is remarkably similar to the descriptions offered by the gospel writers. In fact, they don't contradict anything that they've said. Early external non-Christian sources corroborate the testimony of the New Testament authors. Archaeology, 
continues to corroborate the Gospels. And the reason we say continues is because archaeology is not done yet. There's more to be found. Erastus, a city treasurer identified in Romans 6.23. No one believed he existed until a piece of pavement was discovered in 1929 confirming his existence. And that's what's amazing when you go through this archaeology. We today have more evidence than any other human beings that lived before us. We have more reasons to believe and less excuses than anybody before us to believe in the fallen and risen Lord. Iconium. In Acts 13, 51, in 1910, a, a, a monument was discovered confirming that Iconium, the city Iconium, was in the city, was a city in the area of Phygeria. Everybody else used to think it was the other way around. But archaeology confirmed exactly what the Bible said. Quinerius in Luke 2, 1 through 3. In the 19th century, Archaeology revealed that Quinerius was a proconsul of Syria and Cilicia from 11 B.C. to Herod's death, 4 B.C. And a coin with his name from this period was found in, on the base of a statue in Antioch. And the reason that this is important because Luke talks about Quinerius. And the only evidence before this piece of archaeology was found in the 19th century was that Quinerius lived or was a ruler much later in time. And everyone said, Luke got it wrong. But archaeology said, either there was another Quinarius or he had double duty. He, he served in two different time frames. We don't know if it's the same Quinarius, but there was a Quinarius, and archaeology confirms it and confirms what Luke said. Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, who ruled in the area of Abilene, Luke 3, 1. Excuse me. An inscription was found confirming the one who ruled in the precise period of time described by Luke. The Pool of Bethsaida, or Bethsaida, Bethsaida, in John 5, 1 through 9, was confirmed in 1888. Archaeologists found the remains of the pool, complete with the steps leading down from one side and five shallow porticos on the other side, just, described, just like it was described in the New Testament. In addition, the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1947 confirmed the location that they said it was in 1888. So you had two pieces of archaeology evidence corroborating the New Testament. The titles of Polytarch was disputed until a description, an inscription was found in the 19th century. Five of them were in reference to Thessalonica, the very city Luke claimed they appeared in. Luke's 13.7, another title, people said, wasn't in, in use at the time. Luke identified the title of proconsul of Paulus in Paphos. An inscription was found in Soli Cyprus that acknowledged Paulus was the proconsul at that time. The Pool of Siloam. Identified in John 9, 1 through 12, was discovered just in 2004. Isaiah also referenced its existence. It was dated from 100 B.C. to A.D. 100 based on the features of the pool and the coins in the plaster. The existence of Pontius Pilate was verified in 1961 after finding an inscription of a building by Pilate dedicated to Caesar. It also confirmed his position in the government and his relationship to Caesar. The custom of crucifixion was confirmed in 1968 by the remains of a victim, and five others were discovered. We know the name because it was on his bone box, Johannan. He was killed by crucifixion sometime between A.D. 7 and 70, and he still had the seven-inch nail in his right heel, and his legs were broken just the
the way it was described in John 19, 32, 33. Even when the written accounts of ancient non-biblical writers seem to contradict the testimony of the gospel authors, archaeological findings continue to resolve the apparent contradictions by confirming the claims of the New Testament. No archaeological finds contradicts the New Testament. They all confirm the New Testament. So the Gospels pass the second test. They unintentionally reinforce each other, the names, the locations, and non-biblical writers and archaeology. Does this mean they are reliable? Not yet, but we're halfway there. Now we have to make sure they haven't been corrupted over time. We've got to make sure that the accounts we have today are an accurate reflection of what was originally recorded by the eyewitnesses. Have they changed over time? One way to be certain about the content and nature of early eyewitness testimony is to examine the evidence related to the transmission of the New Testament. It is important to identify the original eyewitnesses and their immediate disciples in order to establish a New Testament chain of custody. If we can examine what these first eyewitnesses said to their students, we can reasonably trace the content of the Gospels from their alleged date of creation to the earliest existing copies. The oldest complete surviving copy of the New Testament we have is the Codex Synacticus. I'm not sure I pronounced that right. was discovered in a monastery of St. Catherine on the hillside of Mount Sinai in 1844. It is dated between A.D. 330 and 350. And it is how, part of it is housed in the British Library. And I had the privilege of seeing that on a business trip there, and I went and visited the British Library, and I got a chance to see uh, this ancient manuscript. also got to see Tyndale's original New Testament. So let's look at John, the, the Apostle John, and who followed John, and how well they carried on his writings. So John died approximately 100 A.D. We don't know exactly when. He had two students that uh, sat at his foot, you could say. Ignatius and Polycarp were students of the Apostle John. We have seven of the letters written uh, by Ignatius that were written between 105 and 115. Polycarp, Polycarp wrote a letter to the church of Philippi. And we have that letter. Arrhenius, who studied under Polycarp, wrote a defense of Christianity against heresies, and he quoted from 24 New Testament books. And Hippolytus wrote a 10-volume book, Refutation of All Heresies, and he also quoted from 24 New Testament books. This is long before this first New Testament copy that we have. Now looking at Paul, so you can see the, the dates of all his disciples in the, in the handout there. Paul's students confirm the accuracy of the gospel. Paul died approximately 67 A.D. And Clement of Rome, who became a bishop of Rome, he lived from A.D. 35 to 99, may be the same co-worker that Paul identifies as Clement and Philip. Philippians 4.3. We can't, we don't have any historical evidence to link the two, but quite possible. Wrote the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. It is the oldest surviving letter 
outside of the New Testament, written in A.D. 96, maybe A.D. 95, some people say. He quoted in A.D. 95 from seven New Testament books. They were already in existence. They were written early. Following him were five more, six more bishops of Rome, all the way down to Pius I, and they taught what Clement taught, which taught what Paul taught, and Justin Martyr confirms that in his writings when he wrote his first and second apology in the dialogue with Trypho. And then Tatian the Assyrian, he wrote a, a paraphrase and a harmony of putting the four Gospels together in one. All of this happened many years before any council determined what would officially become the New Testament record. Looking at Peter's students, or disciples. Peter died approximately 68 AD. Peter preserved his eyewitness testimony in the Gospel of Mark. Mark really wrote on behalf of Peter. Mark ended up becoming the first bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. And he was the bishop from 43 to 68 A.D. And he had the succeeding bishops were all students of his, following his teachings. Justice, also the last bishop there noted as of Alexandria, also became the director of a new school that was started called the Catechal School of Alexandria. It became a very important school, and it started... Uh, building up the libraries of all the ancient texts that they had. The one that followed him, Pantaneus, he was also a missionary to India. And when he was in India, he found the book of Matthew in use in India. Clement of Alexandria quoted from 22 of the New Testament books. Origen wrote a commentary on almost every book of the New Testament and quoted from every one of them. Pamphilus wrote a five-volume treatise called the Apology of Origen, and Eusebius of Caesarea, who became known as the first Christian historian, wrote a history of the church, which you can still go on Amazon and buy it, is quoted in quoted 26 New Testament books. So here's a book written in before 339 A.D. when he died that's still in print. This chain of scriptural custody from Peter to Eusebius, brings us well into the period of the time in which the Codex Synacticus was penned. These consuls did not create the canon or the current version of Jesus we know so well. They simply acknowledged the canon and description of Jesus that had been provided by the eyewitnesses. Now, this is not in the book. I've always heard that you could take these early writers, and you could construct the New Testament all but seven verses from what they quoted. So I searched to find out if that was true. It's not true, but close. So i got a handout for you to take when you leave. There's, there's some on the back table in the back of the sanctuary and on the table going out the door. And there's, there's, I've compiled, compiled this into one one note, the Christian New Testament quotes before Nicaea, 325 A.D., quoted 63% of the verses. They quoted 86% of the Gospels. Of Paul, they quoted 
in the rest of the New Testament, 30%. So out of 7,952 verses in the New Testament, they quoted 4,980 of them. Now, if you look at the Bible manuscripts, the little pieces and scraps of New Testament manuscripts, that means this is the New Testament written by hand. We have pieces of them. You know, there's over 5,000 of them altogether. I'm not saying in that time frame, but we have 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. There's no other piece of ancient history that has this much uh, evidence. If you take the Bible manuscripts, they quote it from 73% of the, the Bible verses, 88% of the Gospels, Paul 73%, and 46% of the rest of the New Testament. If you put the two together, and that's what your handout is, and it's going to go by, by book, by book, by book, how many verses, how many verses were quoted, how many weren't quoted, and gives you the percentage of each book of the Bible, we have 85% of the New Testament can be reconstructed from what the early Christian writers and the early manuscripts have. 99% of the gospel. 84% of Paul and 61% of the rest of the New Testament. On the back is the his, uh, when the books of the Bible were written. So uh, that'll be, I think, a, a good reference for you to have. It, to me, it's compelling evidence. And also, where this, ev- this comes from, the, the URL is there if you want to go get it. It quotes every manuscript they got the information from. It's well footnoted. Every historian where they got it and what the date of the writing was. So it's a lot of deep, so this isn't just pulled out of thin air. All the data there is to back it up. So I think the Gospels passed the third test. By studying the chain of custody and the manner in which these records have been preserved over time, we can draw a reasonable conclusion that they also were accurate. Are we ready to say they're reliable? Almost. There is still one final area we need to examine. Were they biased? What were their motives? Did they have a reason to lie and make this all up? You know, the Bible tells us there's three motives for sin. 1 John 2.16, For all that's in the world is the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but is from the world. Those are the three weapons of Satan. The appeal to our flesh, appeal to our lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, our ego. That's what happened to Eve in the garden. In the criminal world, J. Warner Wallace notices that it all comes down to financial greed, sexual relational desires, or pursuit of power. Let's look at those three. The presence of motive, though, isn't always doesn't always mean that the suspect actually committed the crime. Someone might have the motive to do something criminal, yet be able to resist the temptation to act. On the flip side, however, the defense attorneys often cite the lack of motive when they are making the case for their client's innocence. Why would my client have done such a thing when it would not have benefited him in any way? That's a fair question, and that's one we need to ask as we examine the claims of the apostles. They were not driven by financial gain. They left their occupations and their lives behind to follow Christ. 
become fishermen of men. Follow me. They rejected material wealth, believing the truth of the gospel provided eternal life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 writes, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. These people were dedicated. And Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 6, the apostles lived as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. If the disciples and the apostles were lying for a financial gain, their lies didn't seem to be working. Those who watched Paul closely knew he was, a dedicate, he was dedicated to spiritual life rather than material gain. He coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, Acts 20, 33. He took no money for his preaching, as we learn. He was a tent maker to make his own means, even though he deserved it. And he talks about that. Ministers deserve to be paid, but he wouldn't take it. If he was lying about his financial situation, his readers would have known it. All the non-biblical accounts related to the lives of the apostles, whether legitimate or legendary, affirm the poverty of the disciples as they traveled the world to proclaim their testimony. The most reasonable inference from the early record of the New Testament documents and the agreement of the non-biblical record is that the writers of the New Testament were contentedly penniless as they proclaimed. It is reasonable to conclude that the financial greed was not the motive that drove these men to make their the claims they made about the gospel. The apostles were not driven by sex or relationships. While the New Testament documents say little about the love lives of the apostolic eyewitnesses, we do know that Peter was married and had a mother-in-law as identified in Matthew 8.14. Paul confirmed this and suggested that Peter wasn't the only one who was married when in his letter to the Corinthians he asked, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, in 1 Corinthians 9.5. The early church fathers also suggested that all the apostles were married with the exception of maybe John, the, the youngest apostle. Clement of Alexandria wrote, Alexandria wrote that Peter and Philip had children and that Paul, although married, did not take his wife with him when testifying as an apostle. The 12 apostles were not 12 single men in search of a good time. They weren't using their position or testimony to woo the local eligible women. The most reasonable inference, given that we know about the lives of the apostles, is that the sexual relational desires was not the motive that drove these men to make the claims they made in the Gospels. The apostles were not driven by the pursuit of power. Power has its perks. Not at least of which is the ability to protect oneself. The kind of power that was never available to the apostles. The early Christian movement immediately faced hostility from those who actually did possess the power in the first century. Rumors quickly spread that the Christians practiced rituals that offended Roman sensibilities and were unwilling to worship Emperor Nero as divine. And Tacitus reports what happens under Nero's rule after the burning of Rome and he blamed it on the Christians. And he covered the Christians with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to the crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. 
At this early point in Christian history, leadership within the Christian community was a liability rather than an asset. It was during this time in history when Peter and Paul were executed in Rome, but they were, weren't the only apostles as Christian leaders which cost them their lives. The non-biblical histories and writings related to their lives and ministries of the 12 disciples consistently proclaim that the apostles were persecuted and eventually martyred for their testimony. And we can read it back there in the Fox's book of Martyrs. The apostolic eyewitnesses refused to change their testimony about what they saw even when they faced unimaginable torture and execution. Only John appears to have escaped martyrdom, but he too was exiled and persecuted for his position as an apostle. The most reasonable inference given that we know about their deaths is that the pursuit of power and a position was not the motive that drove these men to make the claims they made in the Gospels. In fact, you could say for Paul, it's the opposite. He had the power in the Jewish church. You know, he had the power to go out and persecute the Christians. But once he became a Christian, he relinquished all need for power. In a defense, so if a defense attorney were representing the apostles, defending them against the accusations that they lied about their testimony, that attorney could fairly ask the question, why would my clients have done such a thing if they would not have benefited from it? Certainly there was no benefit of any of the apostles in the three areas we'd expect a motive for such a lie. Does it make sense that the disciples would forsake everything for spiritual claims they were new they knew were untrue. The Gospels passed the last test. We examined the four important areas that jurors must consider when determining the reliability of eyewitnesses. The most reasonable inference is the Gospel writers were present. They saw the risen Lord. Corroborated accurate, and unbiased. They simply wanted to transmit the truth of the most important information for humankind. If this is the case, we can conclude with confidence that their testimony is reliable. We've done the heavy lifting needed to determine the reliability of these accounts. We've been diligent and faithful as jurors, and have considered the evidence. It's time to make a decision. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are just truly amazed at the faithfulness of the writers, the writings all the way back to the Old Testament being prophesied, coming to fruition in the New Testament times. And that there's so much evidence that this is your book, the true word of God. And that your providential hand continues to help us confirm that everything that's in there is true as archaeology continues. I pray that anyone who has not yet put their trust in Christianity to save them from their sins, that they get down on their knee and pray to you as a sinner needing repentance and asking for forgiveness of their sins and putting their trust in you.
For those of us who are already believers, I hope this strengthens your resolve and gives you tools to make you a bolder Christian and to shine the light brighter as you give testimony about Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.